We come to the conclusion of a teaching series from the book of Ezekiel today. And I, I have to tell you that it, it has been an adventure that I really um, didn't fully anticipate. When, when I felt like God was giving me this instruction, I was like, Lord, really, um, let me make sure I've got this. Ezekiel, one of the strangest of the Old Testament prophets, in the summertime, this is a recipe for um, an empty house. And yet, as he always does, the Spirit of God has taught us so much here, and it's been such an adventure. We come to the close today, and we're going to look in the closing chapters. I'm not going to teach nine chapters today, but the closing section of Ezekiel is nine chapters long. It's chapters 40 through 48, and this is where uh, Ezekiel has, has delivered messages about what God was doing leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the deportation of the people of God into exile in Babylon. But as soon as the city was destroyed, as soon as the temple was gone, he turned his, the, the prophet turned his attention to what God was going to do. And he begins to speak as an apocalyptic prophet, talking about uh, God's plans for the future. The first thing that he has to do is deal with the loss of the temple. And so in these chapters, he speaks about a new temple. But we need to understand the details and what temple this is that the prophet speaks about. There are two temples in Israel's history, and I believe that there are two temples remaining in Israel's future. The first temple was the temple built by Solomon, the materials gathered by David, construction under King Solomon. We find in 1 Kings chapter 8 that temple being dedicated for the first time and the glory of God tangibly, visibly coming and settling on that temple. That temple is the one that we've seen in Ezekiel that is being destroyed by the Babylonians. After the exile, the prophet speaks about the return of the people to the land. And as they return, history tells us they came back in three basic waves of refugees. The first wave led by a man named Zerubbabel. The second by uh, led by Ezra, and the third and final uh, wave led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah was responsible for building, rebuilding the wall around the city of, of Jerusalem. Ezra was primarily responsible for teaching the people how to re-implement the culture that God had given them. But Zerubbabel, the, the name that you may not know, I'm sorry about that, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. <laughs> his job, his job was to rebuild the temple. Now, some people think that, that Ezekiel's plan for the temple that we'll see in these chapters was designed to be the next, the second temple. But clearly that's not the case because when Zerubbabel came and built the temple, he followed the plans that they had from Solomon in the first temple. He doesn't follow these plans that we have here. That temple is destroyed centuries later in AD 70 by the Romans. The second temple destroyed by the Romans. 
There has not been a temple in Israel over these last almost 2,000 years, but the Bible tells us that there will be a third temple constructed. That temple, a tribulation temple, is described in Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Revelation chapters 11 and 15. That temple will be built in the early stages of the tribulation. It will be defiled when the Antichrist makes himself, uh, puts himself in the temple and declares himself to be God and demands worship. That temple will clearly be destroyed at some point in the tribulation. And then there is Ezekiel's temple, the fourth temple that will be in the history of Israel. It is a millennial temple. It is during the time that Jesus will, uh, will have an earthly reign and establish uh, righteousness and justice among the nations. That's what's being described here. In these closing chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 42 speak about the construction of the temple. Now I'm going to tell you why this is not any of the other temples because there are dramatic differences both in what this temple has that the other temples do not have and what this temple does not have that are present in previous temples. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Chapters 40 through 42 speak about the construction of the temple. Chapters 43 through 46 speak about the priesthood and the sacrifices that will be implemented. Now, if you're a sharp student of the Bible, you should immediately say, why do there need to be sacrifices in a future temple if Jesus has already come? That's a great question. I have a great answer. In chapter 47 and 48, it speaks about the division of the land among the people of Israel so that they are fulfilling the original plan that God had established for that place, um, for that part of the, of, the, of the earth. The temple in these chapters is the fourth and final temple planned in the economy of God. It portrays a vision of a day when justice and righteousness will be on display for the whole world. Now, we're not going to talk about the details too much, but there are several, there are a couple of places in this passage that sort of take a break and give us a glimpse of the significance of what this temple is about. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want to start by talking about the return of glory. Chapter 43, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Actually, we're going to read the first five verses. That's the vision of the presence that, that God gives to Ezekiel. And then in, in verses 6 through 12, we'll find the theology of the temple. As often done throughout this book, God gives Ezekiel a vision and then follows it up with verses that explain the vision. And that's what he does uh, in, in what we're going to look at this morning. Ezekiel chapter 43, the first five verses, the vision of the presence. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone from his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord entered the house by way of the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner courtyard, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house." Throughout the Old Testament, when we see the glory of God, it's often described as a bright light, and it's associated with either cloud or smoke. The first example shows up in Ezekiel, in, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses and the elders are invited 
to have a dinner in the presence of God himself. It says in Ezekiel 24, 16, that the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain and was covered by a cloud. Now that word settled comes from a Hebrew word, uh, shekan. Out, it means to settle or to rest or to abide. Out of that word settle is where we get the idea, the, the word that's not in the Bible, but we use it regularly, the Shekinah glory of God. That is the idea, the Shekinah glory of God is the visible, tangible presence of God that settles over a people. In, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 24, and all, again in chapter 34, we see that tangible glory settling among the people. In fact, in Exodus 34, Moses actually has a glow about his face because he's been so close in proximity to the glory of God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, I mentioned that that glory was seen at the dedication of Solomon's temple when God rested on that temple and his glory was visible. It's the same glory that we miss sometimes in Luke chapter 2 when we see the angels announcing the birth in Bethlehem. We get caught up with the angels singing uh, all their praises, but, but the, 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 the shepherds mention the, the light, the glory. God was not a distant observer that day. God's glory was right there before those shepherds. The angels were merely putting voice to the praises because that glory was present. Ezekiel has shown us this glory more than once. In, verse, in chapter 1, he saw God's glory coming to Babylon. God's glory was making himself known to those who had already been deported. He saw him coming from the north and on a, on a throne that, that would travel. He also, in chapters 10 and 11, saw the glory in a vision leaving Jerusalem. You remember we saw that chapter where the glory, he saw the glory of God leave the temple and, and hover over the outer courts of the temple. And, and then he left the outer courts of the temple and it, and it stayed at the eastern gate of the city. And then it left the city and for a time it hovered over the mountains, the Mount of Olives, east of the city. Jewish tradition tells us that it hovered there for three days and then left. It was the idea that if the people had just repented, if they had just cried out to God, his glory was waiting to come back into the middle of his people. But they never did, and so he left. Ezekiel saw his glory coming in Babylon. He saw the glory leaving from Jerusalem. But here in this vision of chapter 43, he sees the glory finally coming back. As Ezekiel watched, the glory of God entered the east gate by which it had departed previously. He moves to the inner court of the temple and then enters into the sanctuary himself. It's interesting, this glory settled on the first temple that Solomon built, but there's no indication that that same experience happened with the second temple when it was rebuilt, and there's no indication that the third temple will have this experience. But the fourth temple, God makes his glory present. Well, what's the theology of the temple? Verse 6, Then I heard him speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and by the corpses of their kings when they die, by putting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. 
And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, inform the house of Israel of the temple so that they will be ashamed of their wrongdoings and have them measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of everything that they have done, make known to them the plan of the house, its layout, its exits, its entrances, all its plans, all its statutes, and all its laws. And write in their sight that they may observe its entire plan and all its statutes and execute them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. What's happening here is he's beginning to explain why this temple is important. The temple is the throne house of God. It is where his unique presence as shepherd over his people will be known. But then it says this temple is also a sign of Israel's choice by God. The fact that God chose Israel to be his special people has always been uh, something of a mystery in the history of mankind because literally Israel brings nothing to the table. There was nothing they had to commend them as a special people uh, for God in any way. In fact, uh, a writer from uh, many generations ago coined the phrase, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It's a recognition that there's no reason out of all the nations on the earth that Israel should have been the one God chose. The only reason God chose Israel was precisely because they had nothing to offer and everything that would be related to Israel would then be credited to the power of God in his sovereignty as king, as king over the universe. This temple is a sign of that sovereignty. It's a visible sign of God's holiness. It's interesting in verse 12, it says, the entire area on the top of the mountain, speaking about where the temple is, all around it shall be most holy. Let me tell you what's happening here. The prophet is saying that there will come a time when this temple is put into place and God's presence in that space will make that literally holy ground. You ever wondered why we call things holy? I mean, I mean look right here. On, on the spine of my Bible, see it says holy Bible. What does that mean? I mean, is there anything deeply significant about the leather that, that's on here? Or, or is there anything holy about the pages? Or, or somehow there's special ink that prints the words? No. The word holy is related to the fact that things are declared holy when they are marked by the presence of God. You see, the Word of God gives witness to itself. It says that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. The words on the page are not holy because they were printed with a special ink. They're holy because they are animated. They are energized by the Spirit of God in His Word. That's why we use the word saint to describe us, even when we don't act very saintly. Why? Because when the Spirit of God comes into you, when you become a believer, a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God takes residence in you, and that makes you holy ground. Not because you're all that good, but because God is present in you. That's why even when we don't behave the way we should, we don't act in a way that really honors God, 
we're still saints, not because of our behavior, but because there is a presence in us. Saint is related to the word sacred or sanctified, which is related to the word holy, which means set apart for a purpose. The Spirit of God lives in you. That makes you holy. So I don't act very holy sometimes. I know. Uh, Me too. But see, that's why we have to understand who we are in Christ. See, the devil loves to tell you all the things you do wrong and why that disqualifies you to be a serious follower of Jesus. Man, you can't lead in church. You can't serve in church. If people knew some of the stuff that you've done, well, here's the thing. You're not defined in God's eyes by what you've done or not done. You are defined in God's eyes because his presence is in you. That makes your heart holy ground. Now, we need to strive to see, we need to work to see that our behavior matches the holiness of the presence in our heart. But we are saints nonetheless. We are holy. This temple is is meant to describe the holiness of God. Also, this temple is a visible sign, a witness of the redemptive love of God. It's a confirmation of all of his promises. This temple is a physical sign of the new covenant. You say, now, wait a minute. How can an Old Testament-style temple be a sign of the new covenant? Well, this is where you need to understand the differences between this temple and all the temples that went before it. For example, this temple is built in a completely different way than the other temples. The other temples were built so that there was a an entrance where people came and they were funneled through a series of courtyards until they came to the place where the sacrifices were held and the Holy of Holies, which was the presence of God, was behind that. So there was a very directed way that you could approach, that you could enter the temple. If you go back and read these chapters, chapters 40 through 48, what you'll find is that this temple, this temple has doorways on all sides. And they're open for people to just come and go from whatever direction. You see, the temple had a very controlled access point in the Old Testament. But this temple is accessible from any direction for any person. All right? Let me tell you some things that are missing from this temple. There, are, there is no ark in this temple. The ark was the place where the great sacrifice for the sins of the people that was presented every year on the the high day of atonement. There is no ark in this place. There's no veil. In the ancient temple, the Holy of Holies was the place where God was, and it was separated by a heavy veil, and only one person, the high priest, could only go into that that space one time a year, and only then after he had had sufficient sacrifices to make sure that he was cleansed to be in the presence of God. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and that veil was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. God himself ripped that veil. There's no veil in this temple because God is fully accessible to his people. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no, uh, there's no veil. There's no altar of incense. The altar of incense in the ancient temple was a constant burning of incense. The smoke and the aroma from that incense would always rise, and it was a symbol of the prayers of God, uh, the prayers of the people to God. You don't need the symbol when the Messiah is present for conversation anytime you want. There's no golden lampstand. 
the golden lampstand, that seven-pronged uh, candelabra, was a symbol of the presence of God in, as described by light. Now it's unnecessary because it's been replaced by the Shekinah glory. God is there among his people. Now sometimes people will say, but, but, but you know, you, there shouldn't be sacrifices in the millennium because Jesus has already solved the problem of human sin. He was the once-for-all sacrifice. Some critics might say that, that literal sacrifices in the millennium are, are almost a, a, a reverting to a previous time. But here's the thing. The misunderstanding comes when we think that sacrifices were necessary for salvation. Here's the thing. I, I've had people say, well, this can't be, this can't be a future temple because it has sacrifices. And sacrifices have now been made null and void. Okay, here's, here's what you need to remember. It's a misunderstanding if you think that the sacrifices in the Old Testament actually provided for the forgiveness of sin. Let me read you some verses and then I'll explain them. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 4 of that chapter, it simply says, after a discussion of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, in the Old Testament, there were certain lessons to be learned by the sacrificial system. God was teaching them almost with object lessons every time a sacrifice was offered. First, the first lesson was, you can't come to God directly because you have sin. The second lesson is, your sin needs to be paid for, but you can't pay for it. You can't. There's no way you can be pure enough to pay the price of your own guilt. So, you need a substitute. But that substitute needs to be unblemished. That substitute needs to be pure and holy. All right? In the Old Testament, the object lesson teaching these, these truths were that I need, to be, I need to be right with God, but I can't pay my own sin. I need a substitute. So an animal that was checked by the priest to make sure that it was without blemish would die because the payment for the guilt of sin is death. That death would then be allowed to substitute for us. In other words, an innocent substitute died to pay the guilt that we bring to the sacrifice. But here's the thing. The, the goats and the bulls, they never actually paid the price of sin. They were object lessons. What they did was they showed the people that their forgiveness was on credit, if you will. In the same way that we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, forgive me my sins. Jesus, we know Jesus died on the cross. We look backwards to the cross and we know that there was a perfect substitute who died to pay for sins that weren't his own. And his substitution then allows us to be made right with God. We look back to that moment. But in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, they didn't believe that the bull would, was an adequate substitute. There had to be another human in their place. They were simply on the other side of the cross. They were looking forward to a sacrifice one day that would forever settle the issue of sin. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers are saved in exactly the same way. 
by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ substituted to pay the guilt of our sin. Now, because the Old Testament sacrifices were never really about paying sin, they were about teaching about the paying of sin, then why would we have sacrifices in the millennial temple? Here's the reason. Because they are memorials. Much like what we do when we celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we, we don't have this theology because it's not biblical. We don't believe that the wine, the, the, the juice, actually becomes the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that the bread actually physically becomes the body of Christ. We don't believe we are sacrificing Jesus again. We don't believe that because that's not what was happening. Jesus was sacrificed once for all forever. But we have a memorial where we look back to that event on the cross and we remember it. He says, do this, what? In remembrance of me. We look back and remember the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They were doing the exact same thing. They were simply looking forward, if you will, and remembering. Isaiah tells us that in the millennial temple, the nations will come to the mountain of Zion so that they can learn about Israel's God. These memorial sacrifices will not be for the forgiveness of sin any more than they ever were. They will be the same kind of object lessons to teach why it's necessary for sin to be paid for with death, with a perfect substitute. They are object lessons to the world of that day who will be seeking to know this God of Israel. And so they will be memorials, much the same way that we do the Lord's Supper. All right, that's the return of glory. Turn over to chapter 47. In chapter 47, we find another break. Um, and this is speaking about the river of life. Here is described a river that will begin to flow out of the temple. And he starts by giving us the depth and the width. And then he'll talk to us about the restoration and healing that comes from this, from this river. So, uh, the river of life, chapter 47, verses 1 through 5. Then he brought me back to the, to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gate, by the way facing east. And behold, water was spurting out from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the hips. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not wade across, because the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be crossed by wading." Now, there are some similarities when we hear about this river. Uh, the Apostle John talks about a river in Revelation chapter 22, but that's a river uh, not in the millennium. That's a river that, that is in eternity. 
But what Ezekiel is telling us is that flowing out of the temple where the presence of God is, there is a river that begins as a tiny trickle. And the angel takes him and they measure and they travel a thousand cubits and they measure and it's up to his ankles. And then they travel a thousand more and they measure and it's up to his knees. And they travel a thousand more and they measure and it's up to his hips. And then they say it travels a thousand more and it has become not just a roaring river, it has become like an ocean. It is deep enough to swim in. You can't, you can't wade through it anymore. Think about, think about this. This is significant because this vision of Ezekiel in chapter 47 is, is one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest expressions of hope for life that we find in the entire Old Testament. Let's put it in terms that we understand. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. And it says that in order to make sure that he was dead, the soldiers who were charged with that crucifixion took a spear and they jammed it up under his rib cage to see if he was dead. And it said, out spilled water and blood. What started as a trickle of blood from the cross became not just 12, but then 120 followers who on a day, 10 days after the ascension, found themselves in Jerusalem. And that 120 filled with the Spirit of God within a day became 3,000 followers of Jesus. That 3,000 followers of Jesus soon became more than 5,000 followers of Jesus. The book of Acts quits using numbers after that because it says that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved, and the church began to grow. You can measure it like that river. It's just above your ankles, then it's up to your knees, then it's up to your hips. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, the ancient Roman Empire is gone. It's only found in the pages of history. It's only found in the ruins that are spread across Italy. But we know that the church is still here. That river of, of the blood of Christ has been flowing. It has been flowing. It has been flowing. It has been going deeper and deeper. It's been getting stronger and stronger until John, the same John who recorded the, the trickle of blood from the body on the cross, that John writing in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. What happened was that blood began to trickle out of a beaten, broken body on the cross. And over the course of these 2,000 years, that trickle has become a river until it was raging, until it has become an ocean. And that ocean is full of blood that provides mercy and forgiveness for whoever will swim in it. What Ezekiel saw is the reality of what we experience you say, I, I have so much sin in my life. Pastor, you have no idea the things that I've done. I understand. But I'm not going to ask you to step into a little river that only reaches to your ankles. I'm not going to ask you to, to wade through a river where you can be forgiven up to your knees. I'm not going to ask you to stand up to your waist. I'm going to invite you into a river of forgiveness and mercy that is deep enough for you to swim in. It's available for you. 
What Ezekiel saw in the Old Testament is what we see in the New Testament. It's what John saw in the book of Revelation. Well, this river, you can look at the verses 6 through 12 of this chapter. I'm not going to read these verses for you in chapter 47, but I want you to just to read them when you get a chance. Verses 6 through 12, he talks about how this river produces life everywhere it flows. In fact, trees with fruit that bloom every month grow up on either side of it. In fact, this river flows into a sea that is dead. Let me tell you about the Dead Sea. In the oceans of the world, there is a salt and other mineral content of somewhere between 4 and 6%. That is... Um, low enough to allow for a whole variety of aquatic life. All kinds of fish and, and other creatures live, uh, live in the oceans of the earth, except the Dead Sea. Where there's four to six percent salt and minerals in the rest of the oceans around the world, the Dead Sea is, is dead for a reason. The mineral content of the Dead Sea, salt and other minerals, is about 26 percent, which means it is unlivable that water. What Ezekiel describes in this vision is that the water flows out from the temple and it passes through the land as it, as it increases and it gets to the Dead Sea and it says that when the water from the temple hits the Dead Sea there is a transformation that takes place and the Dead Sea becomes alive. In fact, he says it becomes a fisherman's paradise because every kind of aquatic life, every kind of fish can be found there. Fishermen take their nets to the Dead Sea, which they've never done before in history, and they fish because it's so teeming with life. Why? Because the life flow from the throne of God has made its way. The story here, the symbolism here, is that when God comes to his people and makes himself known, Everything about the, about the world will be changed. Think about this. That space, remember it says the space on the top of that mountain would be holy. What's happening is as God settles into that space, he begins the process of inching out across the earth until the whole earth has been reclaimed as holy ground. Can you imagine that? This old broken world, this globe that, that's full of natural disasters and, and, and all the brokenness that we see. Can you imagine when God remakes this world and it's new and it's fresh and it's alive the way he always intended for it to be? See, that's the promise. We've seen the return of the glory. We've seen the river of life. But there's one verse I want you to look at and we'll be done. I want you to see the residence of God. In chapter 47 and 48, after the part about the water, the rest of this book is given to the division of the land and the, the way Israel will uh, be, be in its place during these last days. But there's one verse that I want you to see that's really the perfect close to the book. Ezekiel was written to a people who were trying to hold on to some semblance of faith even though they had been ripped out of their homeland they lived in exile among a people who hated everything they believed. 
Part of the motivation for teaching from this book is that we are increasingly living in a culture that hates the very things that are dear to us. How do we live our faith in exile? Well, Ezekiel walks them through this story. He promises them that they will return to the land, but he promises a day when things will be made right. And he finishes with probably the best possible verse that you could finish with. It's Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. Speaking about the new Jerusalem, that city, he says, The city shall be 18,000 cubits all around, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Now it's interesting because uh, the Lord is there is really a translation of two Hebrew words. The first is the, the, the name of God that we, that we refer to as um, Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that means I am that I am. It was the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. That is Hebrew word, but Yahweh has come down to us first through Latin and then German and, and eventually English, Yahweh has become for us Jehovah. Yahweh and Jehovah, they're really interchangeable. They're just the same name in different languages. And so uh, Yahweh Shema, Shema is the, is the word meaning uh, is there or, or rests there, abides there. So what he's saying here is the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh Shema or Jehovah Shema. The millennial city will be known as Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there because of the Lord's presence and his preeminence. In that day, Israel will be converted. They will discover and follow their Messiah. They will have a new heart. They will walk in obedience to the Lord. And Israel will finally be the witness to the nations of the glory of God, which she was always intended to be from God's first choice. What does this have to do with us? Well, it has to do with us because faith is living today in light of tomorrow's promises. As we, if the, if the, if the end times picture that we have looked at in recent weeks, if that is, if that is an accurate understanding of scripture, then the world in which we live will get darker before it gets lighter. How do we live as a people in exile? Not in our own homeland, a homeland which honestly we haven't yet been to. But how do we live in a place where they hate all of the things that we love? It's related to the fact that God's good to his word. And everything that he promises gives us the strength to get up and go to work and face the world in which we now live. When I was a kid... They used to laugh about how preachers would always, you know, the standard sermon was, uh, we, we used to say the standard sermon is, is three points in a poem. Well, this is a big day for you. I don't think in 23 years of the life of Evergreen that I've ever finished a sermon with a poem. But I found a poem. It came across my desk. And it was written by a woman. Her name is Margaret Eileen Harlan. She wrote it after hearing a message at her church on this verse. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Jehovah Shema. 
she went home and wrote this poem. And honestly, I'm not a poetry guy much. But this is a great finish to the book of, Jeho- uh, of Ezekiel. Let me read it to you. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. One of the names of the Lord our God, which speaks of His love and His care, is called in the Hebrew Jehovah Shema, and it means that the Lord is there. In your hours of sorrow and your times of grief, when your soul seems so filled with despair, reflect on the words of Jehovah Shema and know in your heart He is there. When you're flat on your back or you're suffering pain and you're feeling that life is not fair, start counting your blessings from Jehovah Shema. Just think on His love. He is there. When your plans go awry or your dreams fall apart, when your burdens are heavy to bear, lean hard on the promise of Jehovah Shema. You are never alone. He is there. When the devil's temptations press hard on your soul and he deviously seeks to ensnare, Run quickly to Jesus, your Jehovah Shema. Then your battle is won. He is there. When your heart overflows with thanksgiving and praise, and you pour out your love in your prayer, there's rejoicing in heaven by Jehovah Shema, for He hears, and we know He is there. Ezekiel 48.35, the Lord is there. It reminds me a great deal of Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, says the Lord. How do we live as people of faith in a generation of exile? We do it with the unshakable confidence that God is in us, He's with us, He's around us, He's working through us. The generation that Ezekiel prophesied to, a generation in exile, hard, hard generation to be the people of God. I believe over the course of the next generation, for us, that this will be a hard, hard time to be the people of God. But for this one thing, Jehovah Shema, the Lord, He's right here. And you are strong enough. You are capable enough you are powerful enough in him to live out kingdom life in this generation folks we are the light we are the salt and we will not back down because we are the people of god empowered by the spirit of god Standing on the Word of God until the final return of our God. That's who we are. And that's who we will be. As we go out from this place, maybe the people who are called Evergreen have this 
unmovable certainty that our God is big enough to use us even now in this generation to advance the kingdom until He returns in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.